Turn in your copy of the scriptures, if you would please, to the gospel of John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Sometimes people say things aloud to someone, but there's an obvious ulterior motive that someone else hear it as well. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes we'll, sometimes somebody will say something aloud to someone, but they're also, you can tell by the way they worded it, they're hoping someone else with an earshot of them would have heard it as well. Uh, Justin just finished his baseball season. For the most part, parents have been pretty tame. If, you know what I'm, if you've ever experienced Little League, or really any kid's sports, there's times that we as parents can forget that it's just a game and our kids are behaving themselves, but we need to be reprimanded. For the most part, parents have been pretty tame. I've definitely seen, seen worse. However, there were some times when parents, particularly dads, would say things to their children that I'm pretty sure were also directed to the umpire. Like, don't worry, Johnny, the umpire missed that one that time, but nobody's perfect. He's going to miss some sometime, Johnny. You just hang in there, Johnny. Umpire, get it next time, Johnny. Like, I'm thinking, I don't know if that was totally for Johnny. Um, Hey, Michael, keep your head up. Umpires miss calls sometimes. It happens. Don't worry, nobody's perfect. Especially not him, Michael. You know, like, it's one of those deals. Buddy, let it go, son. Some umpires make good calls, others don't. What you going to do, son? Just let it go. He'll get one right one of these days, I'm sure. Like, it's, it's stuff like that where it's like, I think there was, I think there was a, perhaps an ulterior motive. And it's not limited to baseball games, right? I mean, sometimes it happens uh, even in Christian circles, right? Sometimes it happens even with, perhaps you've been in a situation where uh, a pastor, if you will, will, will pray a certain prayer, and he is praying, but he's praying in such a way that he's like praying a sermon. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Like praying his message or praying something that he's really intending for a certain group in the crowd. Stories told of a preacher who was shaking hands at the door of the church after the Sunday morning worship service when someone thanked the pastor for both of his messages. And puzzled, he gently corrected the man and said, but the preacher said, I only preached once this morning. He said, yeah, you preached one message, but you prayed another. Sometimes pastors will will do that. And it's not, let's be fair, it's not just pastors. It's, what about parents? How many of you as parents have ever prayed to the Lord in the hearing of your children, but you were really also preaching a sermon to your kids? I'm sure I'm not the only one who's found myself doing that. You know, one of those, dear Lord, help Johnny to clean his room like he's been told several times before, and we wouldn't have to have such difficult times, Father in heaven, if he would just simply clean his room. Lord, help him to realize how simple it really is and how honored you would be by him obeying me. Thus obeying you by cleaning his room. In Jesus' name we pray, but seriously clean your room. Amen. Like one of those, you know what I mean? <laughs> Parents will sometimes do that. And you'll, you'll realize there's a prayer that's been prayed. And you're very, very well aware that both God and your child are listening. Prayer is supposed to be conversation with God. And yet sometimes when people pray, it seems as if their words were intended for others as well. But to be fair... Praying aloud to God with a dual purpose of both God hearing and others hearing is not necessarily unfounded in Scripture. Think about it. The vast majority of times Jesus prays, we have no details regarding the prayer. We're we're told he often withdrew to pray, but more times than not, we don't know what he prayed or what words he used. However, God is sovereign, so if there's a prayer of Christ in our Bibles, it was certainly intended to be heard or read by others, evidenced by the fact that it's in our Bibles, right? And moreover, there are times uh, when we know for certain Christ intended his prayer to be heard, not just by the fact that it's in our Bibles, but also by the words of the prayer. Consider John chapter 11 and verse 41, the raising of Lazarus 
We read these words. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes. And listen to the words Jesus used, right? Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. I would say this pretty obvious that he wants, he's saying this aloud, he's looking up to heaven, he's praying to his father aloud, and he's saying, because of the people who are standing by. He was intentionally praying both, he was praying to the Lord both so that the Lord would hear and so that those standing by would hear. John chapter 17 contains what is commonly referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And once again, evidenced by the fact that you and I can read it today because it's present in Scripture, and that Christ prayed this prayer aloud in the presence of the Twelve, we know that this prayer was intended to be heard, yes, by God, but also by the Twelve and by Christians like you and me today some 2,000 years later. And the title of our sermon today is The Church and Her Impact on Culture. And this isn't a sermon specifically about John 17 per se. We're not dissecting the high priestly prayer of Christ, although I would encourage you to study it. I would encourage you to spend some serious time looking at John's chapter 17, namely because of this, you can learn a lot about a person by how they pray aloud. You can learn a lot about what's on their heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You can learn a lot about what's on a person's heart and mind by listening to them speak, by listening to them pray. So by looking at Christ's prayers, we can learn a lot about what was on his heart regarding his people, and that's why I've chosen this text to preach from today. So again, if I've whet your appetite to understand more about what Christ prayed in this prayer, uh, we won't be going into it in great detail, but I would encourage you, read through it slowly, take some time, write out his prayer, look at the words that he used, and really think about them and meditate upon them. Wow, listen to what Jesus Christ is praying to his Father about us, his people. And as I said, how someone prays often reveals a lot about what's on their heart. So today, having such a robust example of Christ's prayer in the text, we're going to look at it to see what's on Christ's heart when it comes to his bride, the church, Christians like you and me, having an impact on culture. Now, what I'm going to do, though, even though we're not going to be getting into it in great detail, I couldn't resist the opportunity to read the entirety of Christ's prayer as it's held for us in John chapter 17. So I want to encourage you to do is to do whatever you need to do to fully focus on what I am reading, what Christ is praying. If that's sit there and close your eyes and listen to the words, great. If it's read along in your Bible, great. But let's focus on this. This will be our prayer uh, for our time today. What better prayer could I pray than a prayer that Christ prayed, right? So we're gonna, I'm going to read John chapter 17 and uh, treat this as what it is, which is a prayer of Christ to his and our Heavenly Father. John 17. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. 
For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, And will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Amen and amen. One of the things that I want you to see from this text, see from this prayer that Jesus prayed to his and our Heavenly Father, is that God is not only a saving God, but he is also a sending God. We see this concerning Christ. Look at John chapter 17, verse 3. God sent Christ into the world to accomplish his purposes. Verse 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Five verses later in verse 8, For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Verse 21, That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. God is ascending God. And John says this elsewhere throughout his gospel as well. John chapter 3 verse 34, for he whom God has sent speak the words of God, for God does not give the spirit by measure. John chapter 6 and verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. John 16 verse 27, for the father himself loves you because you have loved me and many have believed that I came forth from God. John chapter 8, verses 28 and following. Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. Verse 29 says, And He who sent me is 
with me. John 8, verse 42. John said to, uh, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Now, if you've been paying attention, I may have been accentuated a certain word, that word being sent. Right. God is a sending God. God sent Jesus Christ into this world to accomplish his good pleasure. Sent him into this world through the womb of a virgin, but he pre-existed his virgin birth. Always existed in eternity past within the Godhead as the second member of the Trinity. And just as God sent Jesus into the world, we are sent by Christ into the world to accomplish his purposes. John 17, verse 18. Look at that in the text today. As you sent me, Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Jesus prays to his heavenly father saying that he is sending his disciples into the world as God has sent him into the world. And Jesus says something similar after his resurrection from the grave. He appears to his disciples, all except Thomas, and says in John chapter 20, verse 21, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Many times throughout the scriptures, Jesus is saying, I've been sent and I'm sending you. Just as I have been sent, I will also send you. He draws examples between his having been sent and our having been sent. God is ascending God. He glorifies himself by using those he has called, those he has saved, those he has adopted as his very own children, and sends them out to do his work and continue his work. Now, think about it for a moment. Um, show of hands, how many of you, like, you're like me, and you're like, pretty sure that God could do things better without us if he just did them on his own? Like, he would just, there'd be less mistakes. There'd be, like, if he just did his thing, just snapped his fingers and did his thing, there wouldn't be, there, there probably wouldn't be um, as many problems. Or maybe his, from our human perspective, his will would be accomplished sooner. Like, I'm pretty sure that God could work more effectively and more efficiently if I didn't get in the way sometimes. But that's not the point. Uh, God is not just concerned about expediency or efficiency or getting everything perfect without someone messing something up and him redeeming it. God sends people like you and me to places we never thought we'd go to do things we never thought we'd do. And God does what we'd never dreamed imaginable. And that's not just for people who go over the pond overseas to do mission work. God sends people like you and like me to exactly where we are to do things we never thought imaginable. Things we never thought we'd do. And God redeems the time that we have on earth for his glory. This isn't even necessarily unique to the New Testament, right? In Genesis 45, you could read about Joseph telling his brothers, Hey, you think you sent me to Egypt, but in reality, let me tell you who sent me. God sent me to Egypt. Uh, In Exodus chapter 3, we see God sending Moses to Pharaoh. In Isaiah chapter 6, God rhetorically asks, whom shall I send? And Isaiah raises his hand and goes. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world through the womb of a virgin as a missionary of sorts. Think about it. Jesus, who, he, remember, he was born through the womb of a virgin, but he pre-existed his virgin birth. He was always alive in the Godhead, always existing in the throne room of heaven. And he leaves the comforts of heaven, not, of his, uh, not necessarily just of his own free will, but because God, what? Sent him to earth to live a life among us, to preach the gospel to us. The parallels between Jesus Christ and missions 
what Jesus Christ has done and as a missionary are stunning. Jesus Christ comes into this world as, our, as a missionary, but more than that, also as our Messiah, as our advocate and as our substitute. Lives a perfect life, dies on the cross for sinners like you and like me. Defeats death by rising from the grave, ascends into heaven where he's on a bit of an extended furlough of sorts until he comes back to consummate the work altogether on the glorious day of his return. God sends believers into the world, like we read about in our text today, verse 18, to impact our culture. John 17, verse 18 says, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. As you've sent me, I have sent them. Thankfully, God just isn't, uh, isn't just a saving God and just a sending God, but also a sanctifying God. How are we to impact culture? Well, God is a sanctifying God. Look at John 17, verses 17 and following. Jesus prays these words, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. What I want you to see from this particular portion of text, this particular portion of scripture, for our purposes today in our sermon of looking at uh, the church and her impact on culture is that God's sending and sanctifying of his people go hand in hand. The sending and the sanctifying of his people go hand in hand, and we we focus on one more than the other uh, at our peril. It's not a good thing for us to major on one over the other. God's sending and sanctifying of his people go hand in hand. We're not sent into the world to be like them because we've been sanctified. We're called to be holy. Uh, But we haven't been separated from the world that we would be so separated that we would have no impact because we've also been sent. Instead, Christians are to be impacting our culture by being gloriously different from the culture in which we live. Why? Because we've been sent even as Jesus has been sent and we have been sanctified. Look at our text in verse 13, John 17, verse 13. But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them. Why? Because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, Jesus says. But look at verse 15. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus there praying for our sanctification. I'm praying, Father, that you would keep them from the evil one. And to be clear, I'm not praying that you would take them out of the world. Now, I'm fairly certain that Jesus didn't need to clarify his statement for God. God, there was probably a great signal. So I, I don't think Jesus needs to clarify that statement for God. He prays these things aloud, clarifies that. Why? Others were listening. And they might misinterpret it to think, well, are you praying that we would be removed from this world? So he says right there in verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Sent, sanctified. Uh, Romans 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans 8, verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So there are texts within the scriptures that tell us of our importance, the importance of it is to not look like the world. 
We are called to not look like the world in which we live. There's no denying that. Holiness is of utmost importance. We have been called out. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood who've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Perhaps you're familiar with the phrase that believers are to be, quote, in the world, but what? Not of the world. It's a phrase that, although isn't scriptural itself, like there's no chapter and verse where you'll find that, it summarized some of the principles we read of here in John 17. But think about this. The phrase in the world but not of the world seems to focus on the unfortunate circumstance we find ourselves in being part of this sick and dying world but hopeful in the fact that we're not of the world. Well, I'm in the world but I'm not of it. It's like, well, I've got to live here but it's not my home. And listen to me. There's an element of truth to that. This world is not our home. We're just a passing through. We're not supposed to just unpack life here. This is all that it's about. We would do well to live out of the bag because we're going to be moving and going home at some point. This world is not our home. But this phrase, well, we're in the world but not of the world, it's as if we're saying, I mean, I'm stuck here but not forever. I mean, I'm in the world but not not of it. Or, Or it seems to focus on the fact that we're in this world and so we need to try our best to make sure that we're not like the people were stuck living around uh, as we live this life. And it's kind of like sometimes you could be, you know, you, you're, you're, you're looking around, you're like, well, uh, I'm not like them, and I'm not like them. We're in this world, but we're not of this world. Like, I'm just kind of like, I landed on this planet, but I'm going home one day. It's almost like when you, you're having a really bad day with your kids, and you're like, my kids are just, they're, they're, they're feral. They're, 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 they're wacko. I can't believe it. There's no other. But then you're in Walmart. And there's always, some, there's always someone nearby, you're like, but they are not doing that. Good. We're good. It's not that bad. All hope is not lost. It's as if we're living life in the world like that, saying, okay, I'm in this world, but I'm not, I'm not of this world. Now, here's the tricky thing. There are elements of truth to those perspectives, right? We are not of this world. And we do well to remind ourselves of our call to be holy and not to be like the world in which we live, which is ruled and run by Satan himself. Here's my question. Do we see that in the text itself that we're looking at today? If you're on a road trip, and maybe you're driving to some vacation destination, or you're going to visit family, or you're coming back, usually there's some sign, either an actual sign that tells you how much longer it is to your destination, or maybe just a landmark of sorts that you're used to seeing and realizing we're almost there, right? But the sign is not the destination. You say, thank you, Captain Obvious. Well, the the sign is not the destination, right? The sign that says, you know, Orlando, 100 miles away, or on your way back, Cincinnati, 85 miles away. We don't, like, pull the car over, set up camp, take pictures there. We're so excited. We see it, And it excites us to what? Keep going. Keep going. The sign is not the destination. I would say that in John uh, 17, verses 14 and following, the phrase in the world but not of the world, it's coined as a summation of that portion of Scripture. But the not of the world portion of the text is the sign. It's not the destination. It's, it's the, it's, uh, it isn't the ending, it's the beginning. Uh, Jesus is going somewhere as he prays that. Quite frankly, there's an assumption here that believers are not of the world. Christ isn't praying that his followers not be of the world. 
Lord, please let them not be of the world. Do you see that in the text? I don't. Verse 14 says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. Because what? Because they are not of the world. There, there's an assumption. Clearly, they're not of the world. Why? Because they've been saved. They're not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. He says, they are not of the world. It's a statement, not a request of God, nor a command to us in this particular text. Now, that, this is where it's tricky. I'm not saying we're not commanded to be not of the world. We are elsewhere. In this particular text, Jesus isn't commanding anything. He's praying to God, and he's saying, they are not of the world. What does Christ pray for believers in the very next verse? Well, Christ makes it clear what he's not praying for and what he is praying for. Verse 15. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. Now, remember what I said before. Here what we see in this text is that sent and sanctified go hand in hand. Sent and sanctified go hand in hand. Look at verse uh, 15. Excuse me, look at verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Okay, They have been sanctified. Look at verse 15. I do not pray that you should keep them out, that you should take them out of the world. It's a reminder that they have been sent. But that you should keep them from the evil one. They have been sanctified. Don't don't take them out. After all, they've been sent for a reason. They have a purpose. They're on mission. But help them through. Keep them from the evil one. They have been sanctified. Do, do, Do you see that? Sent, sanctified. Sent, sanctified. He repeats himself in verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You know, but Jesus has been sent. He's in the world. He's not of it. So there's a reminder that they've been sent. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. That's a reminder that they've been sanctified. Verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. A reminder that we've been sent. Verse 19. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. A reminder that they've been Sanctified. Do, do, do you see that? Back and forth, back and forth. Sent, sanctified, sent, sanctified. This DNA strand, as you, uh, if you will, of who we are as Christians. Are we sent or are we sanctified? Yes. We're sent and we're sanctified. Sent and sanctified. We're in the world, we're not of it. Puts the emphasis, in my opinion, according to this text, on the sign, not the destination. Jesus starts out saying they're not of the world, but they are in it. So sanctify them. They're not of the world, but they are in it. So just in light of that, think of the difference between these two phrases just for kicks. We're in the world, but not of it. Versus we're not of the world, but we are in it. Doesn't that have a different ring to it? Doesn't that sound like we're being sent, like we're not of the world? This is not our home, but you know what it leaves me remembering? We are in it. So quite frankly, let's make hay while the sun shines. Our life is but a vapor. We're not of this world, but we are in it, and we are in it for a very short period of time. Let's make hay while the sun shines. Let's move the ball down the field. Let's be on mission for the glory of God. That's what we've been sanctified for. We have been sanctified, but we have also been sent. We are not of this world, but we are in it. Look around. We're in it. I don't want to be in it. God sent you. Look at God and tell him he may have messed up. I dare you. Please don't. We are not of this world, 
But it is no accident that we are in it. Up till now, we've spoken about a lot of why. Why should we have an impact on our culture? Why? Because we've been sanctified and we've been sent for such a reason. Let's, in the closing time that we have, let's talk about the how. See, how people have chosen to be on mission has varied over the years and varies in our day and age as well. So I want to present a warning by way of application for us as we wrap things up today. Billy Joel sings a song that says, I don't know why I go to extremes. And it tends to be that we as people, we love extremes. We love it to be all here or all there. Let's just put all our eggs here or all our eggs there. And sometimes in life, that's necessary. But oftentimes, we do so at great expense because there's a biblical middle that we miss because we go all one way or the other. And as Christians, we need to be careful to avoid two unbiblical extremes that will cause us to be ineffective and perhaps detrimental in culture. And I heard a a pastor speak on this at a conference one time, and it really helped me understand it. And I'm hoping that it will help you uh, think about this as we consider what impact we might have on culture. So one extreme, one unbiblical extreme uh, is called syncretism. And the big fancy definition of that big fancy word is the amalgamation or attempted amalgamation of different religions, cultures, or schools of thought. And to put the cookies on the bottom shelf, syncretism is when Christians, or quite frankly, alleged Christians, attempt to combine and unite Christianity with things it was never attempted to be united with. And just like adding oil and water and stirring it together, for a moment, if you stir fast enough, they look like they're together. When you stop stirring, what happens? They separate. Why? They're not going to mix. Syncretism is when Christians or alleged Christians attempt to combine or unite Christianity or marry Christianity to a spouse it was never intended to be married to. The result is always, historically, always a really weird-looking half-breed hybrid of pseudo-Christian but bottom-line pagan system of beliefs, most recently illustrated, I would say, by the emergent movement. And under the guise of wanting to move that missional ball down the field, under the guise of wanting to reach out to others, under the guise of wanting to be Jesus in the culture, they're anything but because instead of moving the ball down the field, they punt on things like the exclusivity of Christ for salvation or the inerrancy of Scripture or the virgin birth or God's design for marriage. So instead of moving the ball down the field, in reality, they're punting on things that we must hold true to for our faith because these are the very essence of our faith. And in every single one of these situations, Scripture is attacked. It might look differently. It might come out in different forms. But the bottom line is the person at the bullseye is Jesus Christ, who is the Word made flesh. Scripture is attacked in every one of these situations. And most recently... I think it demonstrates itself through uh, the emergent movement who seeks to be missional and on mission. And we want to be Jesus to other people. We want to reach out to other people. But what they do is they put things aside that could cause the gospel to be an offense. So they push that aside and dress it all up nice and reach out to other people so that the gospel isn't offensive. But the problem is God intended the gospel to be offensive. He just didn't intend you and me to be offensive. But he intends the message of the gospel to be offensive. So we're, we're messing with what God has designed in the gospel. Unless you think this is the result of modern ingenuity, this was done by liberals 100 plus years ago in an attempt to win those who lived, ate, and breathed academia. Similarly, they compromised on things like the divine nature of Christ and once again, the inerrancy of scripture. 
But we read about this in the Old Testament. We read of the Samaritans in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 33, says the Samaritans feared the Lord but served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. So do you, do you see that? They're trying to combine God-honoring worship with their type of pagan worship, and it doesn't fly. God doesn't buy it. He doesn't love it. It's one extreme. This is uh, perhaps in our day and age, we're focusing on the scent at the expense of being sanctified. Talking about being on mission and reaching out, but what they're reaching out with doesn't save. Do you understand that? They're reaching out and offering somebody something, it's offering somebody a, a, a cup of water, but in reality it's salt water, and if you drink it, it's not going to quench your thirst. Quite frankly, it will kill you. There's no hope with that gospel because it's not the biblical gospel. And while they appear to be on fire for the Lord, their refusal to separate from the world may indicate the fire with which they burn is not from the Lord at all. So one extreme is syncretism. Let's mix Christianity with the culture so that it can be more palatable and we can reach people. Focusing on the fact that we're sent more than the fact that we have been sanctified. At the other end of the spectrum is separatism, what what we're calling today separatism. Big fancy definition, the advocacy or practice of separation of a certain group of people from a larger body on the basis of ethnicity, religion, or gender. Separatists all but rue the day they were placed in this world and talk about it all the time. And quite frankly, some people just ain't happy unless they just ain't happy. The more different they can be, the happier they are, but they're never really quite happy because there's always something for them to moan about not being able to separate from because they live in this world, but they're living in denial. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, so, so, so living in denial, they separate themselves from the culture in which they live, from the culture that John 17, that they've been sent to. And since this isn't a biblical approach, they typically run out of Bible verses that support their extreme ways and start making rules of their own that are loosely affiliated with some scripture, kind of, sort of, but not really. So what you end up with is, um, instead of this pagan uh, hybrid mixture of, of, of uh, liberalism and compromise on one end, separatists come up with an equally unbiblical hybrid of scripture and man-made rules that people live in an attempt to separate themselves from a world to an unbiblical, uh, an unbiblical extreme. And the result of that is typically a disdain for the place in which they've been sent, i.e. planet Earth, uh, and... Therefore, a little to no evangelism or reaching out to help others who are hellbound just like they would be or perhaps are if they really don't understand the grace of God. And looking at our text today and seeing the DNA strand of Christians being one of sent and sanctified, sanctified and sent, there's grave danger of being focused on one more than the other, even to the point I would propose of questioning one's salvation if they claim to love Jesus but not act like Jesus by being too much like the world in an effort to reach the world or separating themselves from the, from the world when Jesus Christ came into this world. Does that make sense? Two extremes. Syncretism. Let's just mix it all up. Separatism. Let's just separate ourselves as far as possible. But in reality, there's a biblical middle that God has called us to. The good news is Jesus interacted with both, preached the gospel to both of those extreme groups. Do you understand that? And that God saved them. God saved them. 
Jesus had a conversation with a syncretist. John chapter 4, the woman at the well. She was a Samaritan living life as a, as a, a, a pagan worshiper. Some wacko mixture. Bottom line, pagan. God saves her. Does Jesus interact with separatists? Yeah. One chapter earlier, a guy by the name of Nicodemus, John chapter 3. His lifestyle and belief system would have been some wacko mixture of Scripture and the Talmud, which is man-made systems of beliefs of how to believe, uh, how to please God. And Jesus spent time with both of them, preached the gospel to both of them, and both of them love Jesus and are in heaven today. Praise his name. So, having a biblical worldview, which requires, just as a side note, that you read your Bible. Like, reading your Bible is not just, come on, this is the fun thing we do as Christians. We really ought to do this. Come on, people now, smile on your brother. Like, let's, let's do this together. Everybody get together and read their Bibles. Man cannot live on bread alone. Cannot live on bread alone. That's not just hyperbole. Jesus says man cannot live on bread alone, but by every most, every sum, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I can't memorize the whole thing. I never said you had to. I just, you just got to eat from it fairly regularly, fairly consistently. A consistent diet of the Scriptures is what we need in order to have a biblical worldview for what I'm about to ask you to do as you interact with Culture, if you don't have a consistent diet of the Scriptures, you're not going to be able to do what I'm about to ask you to do in closing. Using a biblical worldview, we have three ways in which we can interact with the world in which we've been sent into. Uh, Outlined here as receive, reject, or redeem. Receive, reject, or redeem. Uh, So there's, there's some things in this world that we can just receive as is. Oxygen, right? Like, the lost and the saved need oxygen. Oh, I need Christian oxygen. No, you don't. You need oxygen. But I'm a Christian. You've got to breathe, dude. Just breathe. I'm a, I'm a Christian. This is, there's no but I'm a Christian twist to that, you know? Food. It's, it, it's, it's food. I mean, you, you want an apple? You like apples? How, how do you like them apples? Just, just eat, have an apple. It's, it's, but I'm a Christian. Should I have an apple? Is that a Christian apple? Is it from a Christian, Christian-owned Apple orchard, just eat the apple, dude. Eat it. Like, we don't need to, we don't need to flip out over every little, there's some things we just receive. Our, our Christianity doesn't require us to do anything with it. It just is what it is. Eat the apple, breathe the air. You know, is this, what's this water? Is it, can I drink? Yeah, it's water. Just, just, I'm thirsty, but I'm a Christian. Is this, there's no holy water. It's just water. Drink the water. Did you understand? There's certain aspects of our culture we need to be careful, but there's certain aspects of life here on earth you can just receive as is. There's nothing, nothing needs to be done additionally to it in light of the Scriptures. We can receive it. On the other hand, there's certain aspects of our culture that what culture calls normal, just like a bottle of water or an apple, that we need to outright reject. We can have nothing to do with them. Why? Because we're a Christian. We have no business with these things. They must be outright rejected. So water is water. Drink the water. But there are certain aspects of our culture that we can have nothing to do with. Why? Because we love Jesus. There's no Christian use of pornography. It just doesn't, it doesn't exist. We reject it. We stiff arm it. The culture says it's normal. 
But we don't care. It's not normal. We love Jesus. Illegal drug use, the murdering of the unborn, fornication, uh, drunkenness, we reject, and you can fill in the blanks, we reject these things because there's no uh, Christian God-honoring way to embrace these things. So just like we can receive the apple, I mean, just eat the apple, uh, we just, that same, we reject other aspects of our culture that really are unbecoming of someone who claims to love Jesus Christ. But I would say there is a third category, and that is not to receive, not to reject, but to redeem. Redeem. So we may not be able to receive these things as it is, um, but we don't necessarily need to reject them. We can use them in a redemptive way to honor God and impact culture. So, for example, um, sex. When the world talks about sex, it is rarely, if ever, talking about it or presenting it in a God-honoring, Christ-honoring, biblical way. But we don't reject sex, right? We redeem it. We win it back. We display it in a God-honoring way between one man and one woman in the context of a marriage, which is how God designed it. So we don't need to reject. We, we reject our culture's definition of sexuality, but we don't reject sexuality altogether. Does, it, does that make sense? We, we don't receive it. Uh, as is. We don't reject it, but we redeem it. We redeem it back to the purposes which God has intended it to. Uh, Technology. Um, There's probably uh, someone who uses the exact same camera that is recording me preaching right now uh, to film a porn flick. That doesn't mean we reject cameras, right? We just use the cameras in a God-honoring way because the problem isn't in the camera, but it's in the person using the camera and the purpose for which the camera is being used. We don't receive it as is. We don't reject it. We redeem it. Does that, does that make sense? Uh, social media. Now, there are people who use social media to hook up. There are people who use social media to present themselves in a way in which they're not. There are people who live double, triple, and quadruple lives on social media. The, the, the prop, but... You know, like guns don't kill people, people kill people. The problem isn't in the social media. The problem isn't in the technology. There's ways to use social media and technology and all sorts of things to the glory of God. We don't need to reject it. We can redeem it. So there are certain things in our culture that don't need to be rejected, although they cannot be received as our culture uses them. Music is the same way. There are music styles and genres that uh, the lost use to their peril that are totally ungodly and totally not glorifying to the Lord at all in any way, shape, and form. But Lecrae does a pretty good job of redeeming rap music and, 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 and preaches the gospel and some really solid doctrine. The problem isn't in the style of music, but it's the person who's using it. Does that make sense? We can receive things. We can reject things. Or we can redeem things. And here is what I would ask you to consider as we close. What are your default settings? You have them. I have them. Based on temperament, our sinful nature, our upbringing, our environments. We have a default setting. Some people are much more prone um, to be more of a syncretist mindset. To try to mix it up a little because of their, their background or because of how they came to Christ or because of how they've been served by other people who accepted them when they were lost. They're more prone to maybe turn a blind eye to the things of the world that we really should be calling attention to and avoiding. 
On the other hand, there may be people who are more uh, fight and fundy by nature, right? Who are more of a separatist and saying, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to huddle up here in our cabin in the middle of the woods and, uh, and, and we're, we're not going to interact with the world at all. It's just going to be us four and no more. We're the frozen chosen. We're going to let God be God and let him do his own thing. And we're going to stay here and not reach out to anyone. And, and, and quite frankly, it usually starts out with a good intention, right? It starts out with a, you're just sick of the world, right? You're just... You're disgusted by, 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 by the things you see in the world. And I wonder if there's a way that you can say, you know what, I am this way, but a bit, I'm a bit much. I need to move a little this way. I'm that way a bit much. I need to move a little, a little, a little this way. I tend to receive very open and probably a little too open. I tend to reject anything that doesn't have a cross on it. I quite frankly want a Christian toothbrush. I need to, I need to calm down. You see what I mean? There's, 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 there's extremes. I need to, be in, need to be in the middle. And what opportunities might the Lord present as a result of that, of that time? Maybe it's as simple as, I, so when I go grocery shopping, I'm king of the self-checkout. Get her done. All right? I, I don't want just get it done. Go straight to the self-checkout. I'm a, I'm a people person. Love people. Grocery store, I'm on a mission, and the mission is to go home. So go straight to that self-checkout. I don't want to go to the checkout counter and the late, there, there's a, Sweet lady, but she's all, oh, where'd you find this? I found it. It's, it's, a, it's, I found, it's a cleaning agent. I found it in the aisle with cleaning agents. Can you just, it looks interesting. It's like, oh, this is like, is this an SNL skit? Really? Like, what is, what, what is going on here? And, and I, so I tend to just want to be, I just want to get going. I just want to go. I just, and that's not a sin. The self-checkout is not a sin. But if I don't interact with people, I'm not going to rub off on people. If I don't interact with people, I'm not going to get the chance to pray with somebody, invite them to church, little things. If I tend to just be so focused on my mission and not God's mission. So may God give us discernment, right, and wisdom as we live this life. One life. We have one life that's a vapor. May God give us discernment and wisdom as we live this life in a way that honors the Lord but also impacts our culture and people's lives to the glory and praise of our great God. Father in heaven, we uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us to uh, not be like us, but to come and live life with us, preach the gospel among us, and even now inhabit all those of us who are yours. Lord, you've made your abode with us, and we are forever grateful to have been called out of darkness into your marvelous light. Father, you've used people in our lives. You've used um, people, uh, friends, co-workers, parents, you name it, Lord. You've used people in our lives to uh, preach the gospel, to help us in our walk. Lord, show us how we might have a greater impact on the culture that you, not that we ended up in, but that you have sent us to as we live this one life that we have that is a vapor. Lord, we want to glory, glorify you and give you all the glory for all of our days. Show us how. Show us opportunities we miss and uh, enable us to please you with the life and the time that we have. In Christ's name we pray, amen.